Before you start this episode, this is just a reminder that History Hack does have a Patreon account and a Ko-fi account as well. You can either register to subscribe and throw us a few quid every month, or simply buy us enough caffeine to continue through to the next episode. Because frankly, we run on fumes most of the time. Hello and welcome to, or welcome back to History Hack, where we thought we'd throw out another episode. Alex, who have we got today? Uh, today, I'm really excited today. So last year we did a competition, the Great War Group, um, for conference for people to hit us with something interesting, uh, and an article and it would be in the magazine and they would get a free trip to conference. Uh, and our winner is with us today, uh, renowned Great War Group reprobate, Louise Proven, uh, who won the competition, uh, in stunning style with, uh, Dunster Force, which is possibly one of the most bonkers escapades of the first world war louise hello hello and thank you for having me did you think when you were writing the article that you'd win no because it was one of these things when i first read about it i thought it was like some sort of boy's own story somebody had made it up it just sounded so unrealistic and has read more and more into it um you know somebody you know, no one had heard of it so I thought, oh, it's just going to be really obscure. I'll never win this competition. This is completely obscure, but I love it. So I'm going to go with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, set in Azerbaijan. I mean, I couldn't even spell that when I first started. Yeah, you were literally the only person in the world that has got Baku at the top of their holiday destination. To me. I do. Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you have epically fallen down this rabbit hole and you're just refusing to come out now, aren't you? I am. I am. It's um, sort of turned into a bit of an obsession trying to trace the the officers who so who served with Dunster Force in 1918 um as started from start point of having no names i now have um about 235 so yeah it's now a great war group drinking game that when louise starts <laughs> about Dunster Force you have to drink uh, and it's never very long before that yeah it's it's very predictable <laughs> okay so well, well, let's well, go on you speak I was going to say, while, while we're in Mons, uh, this probably should come out as an intervention and, a, and an admission. On the Saturday when we were going around and we were looking at all the different parts of the battlefield, the second most spoken about battle that day was Jutland, and that was mainly Mewies on the bus. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think we did we not have to do a forfeit because of that? Yeah, I think that um, was on the you, charge sheet. Yeah, I think you did for talking about Jutland. I got, I had to do one just for being me. <laughs> <laughs> Less. Right, okay, so let's, if for people sitting there wondering what is Dunster Force and what are these morons talking about, um, let's frame it up for them. So, Louise, what's going on during the First World War on the northwest frontier of sort of India slash what is now Pakistan uh, and Persian border? Well, Persia is probably the most um, pertinent one in that um, the great game had been played out between. Um, Britain and Russia over the previous century. So Persia was all important as this sort of strategic post to India, the jewel in the, um, in the British Empire crown. Um, so any threat to India was really seen as it was just, it was just a no-no. The British were always going to be reacting to that. And as the, the war started, the German Kaiser had intimated he was wanting to raise um, the armies of Islam against um, against the British. And of course, that made the British really nervous about what was going to happen in India. 
uh, Kaiser obviously had, um, well, Germany had a lot of influence in the Ottoman Empire. They'd been investing in the railways there. They'd had a military mission out there training soldiers. Um, Churchill hadn't covered himself in glory, the Ottomans, by promising to build them two battleships and then not letting them have it, have these ships. So um, the Ottomans had sided with the Germans. So from British point of view, you had the Germans and Ottomans uh, sort of as a threat on that side, and you had their allies, the Russians, slowly dissolving into chaos during the Russian Revolution. So you had this area of Persia and Azerbaijan, which was uh, almost like a power vacuum. Uh, what Baku, what Azerbaijan and Persia have was oil. Um, so initially, all of the attention was on India and the threat to India and the jewel, the jewel in the crown. Um, then latterly, the importance of oil. Um, what, as the war went on, it became a war from you know, coal-fired battleships and steam trains through right through mechanization tanks and planes and uh, oil-fired ships. So I mean, oil was something, these oil-fired ships were something that was pushed by Churchill and Jackie Fisher. But the problem being, Britain didn't have any oil. We got coal by the coal by the ton, but we do not have we didn't have any oil at that time. And so Churchill um he's quite often head of his game. He wasn't always right, but he was often head of his game. He managed to secure a controlling share in the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. Um so that secured a supply of oil. So as the Turks and the Germans were encroaching on that area, obviously um, the British were frightened that they were going to lose this source of oil as well. And they wanted to prevent the, the Turks and the Germans from securing it for their own purposes. Um, there was also the uh, Berlin-Baghdad railway. It was an obsession, wasn't it? It was an obsession, this Berlin-Baghdad railway, which is Germany again infiltrating an area which was known to have a lot of oil. So, yeah. Um, Oh, so from that perspective, Persia was very important. Northwest frontier, maybe slightly less so at that time. Um, Afghanistan was this um, buffer type area to, between, you know, in, uh, Asia and India. Um, the Germans did try and sort of buy their way into Afghanistan. They sort of made an, the Emir of Af Afghanistan an all offer if he would raise an army and fight the British in India. But the Emir was quite wily. He said he'd only do it if um, the Germans could supply him with 20,000 troops. And obviously that wasn't going to happen because how would you get 20,000 troops across Asia to Afghanistan? You certainly weren't going to be able to go by sea because Britain was um, pretty well had that, had that base all covered. So um, yeah, the Germans were a wee bit maybe unrealistic in their aims there. Uh, Britain had been playing out the great game for the best part of a century, so they had the resources, they had no shortage of gold, they had people on the ground who were experienced, and the Germans were newcomers to this. Just, you have mentioned there, and this is this is one of the reasons you won the competition, because yes, it was a nuts boy's own story, but... The oil thing, uh, one of the judges picked up that this is actually a really unique way of looking at the First World War and sort of people haven't really paid attention before is to start looking at minerals and their importance and fighting over them. Yeah, definitely. And 
just resources in general. Another um, was cotton in the area, um, cotton being a key uh, ingredient in cordite. So they were trying, if not get the cotton for themselves, just making sure the Germans can't get it. So, yeah, the, um, I think that's what I found was very fascinating about it, even though it was sort of an adventure story. It's very pertinent um, with the geopolitical situation I found so fascinating about it. They have this idea to send a force in, don't they? Um, yeah. And it's under was... General Lionel Dunstan. That's right. It was a small um, volunteer force that was raised from in the last year of the Great War to carry out and it what was a sort of secret special operation in Transcaucasia and Dunster Force well it took its name from Dunsterville as he said. Um he was a very interesting character. He'd been at school with um Roger Kipling. Uh Roger Kipling even immortalized him in a set of stories, Storky and Co. Um when they're at school together. This is the United Services College at Westwood Hope, which was set up for um, children who were destined to go to the army. But uh, these are children of parents who couldn't afford to send their, their kids to the Harrows and Eaton's. So, um, yes, yeah, Storky and Co. And these stories, um, it's kind of, they're very different from the usual genre of boarding school literature in that a lot of it was about exacting revenge on your enemies and, um, you know, just yeah, setting your enemies against each other in a revenge and in some quite horrible ways. And sometimes Alex won't forgive me for this, but at one point they shoot a cat and yes, uh, nail it under the floorboards of an opposing dormitory. It's things like that. I mean, it's really quite brutal for children. But <laughs> where Storky got his name from, his nickname is that a uh, Dunsterville's nickname, Storky, is that um, every school has its own slang and, you know, words to to mean various nicknames um stalky meant conniving and clever and wily so um yeah these were where he he said he, later in life he didn't think he was half as stalky as his name would suggest but um his traits of being clever and wily were very very useful on the northwestern frontier where you were never quite sure who was friend and who was foe at any one time so yeah after after Westwood Ho, he went on to Sandhurst, and then he was posted to the northwestern frontier until the war broke out in 1914. Then he was sent to France. Um, much to his annoyance, he was put on train directing duties in France. He really thought he should be leading the troops over the top, but he was no, he, he was actually heading towards his 50s at that point anyway, so he probably wouldn't have been leading anyone over over the top. So um, he was there for about a year, then sent back to the Northwest Frontier. And then Christmas 1917, he was told to report to Delhi to receive new orders. And these were his orders to um, lead a small force um, from through Persia to Azerbaijan to secure the oil fields of Baku. And at that time, it was a very, very um, secret operation. So the the force, they're all volunteers. They've uh, volunteered for different reasons. Um, one said he'd been through Passchendaele and anything was better for that than that. Uh, another had fell out with his commanding officer, decided he'd volunteer. Um, they all volunteered not knowing where they were going. At the time, it was so secret. They were christened the Hush Hush Army amongst their contemporaries. Um, eventually, they were all gathered in London, uh, received their kit, which included... Um, sun goggles and mosquito nets and snow boots and gloves. So that gave them no clue either as to where they were going. And they did find out, um, 
on the leave of their departure where they were being sent to. Um, the advertising blurb is quite good. It's um, very much like um, I think I've seen something like Shackleton had put in the newspaper looking for volunteers. And it was, gentlemen, are you prepared to undertake a desperate venture which will probably cost you your lives? But if successful, will mean everything at this stage of the war to the British Empire. So it's very much, yeah, you're going to die, sign me up kind of kind of thing. So it is 1,300 miles from Baghdad to Baku. Uh, and I'm guessing there was no motorway. No, and that wasn't even the start of it. They actually took, uh, well, Dunsterville himself had gone straight from Delhi overland to um, Baghdad. Uh, he had a, others had come from Mesopotamia, so, or from back, you know, already there in Baghdad. But the majority of the troops were actually met up in London and they took a ship all the way around the long way through the Suez, you know, through the Med, through the Suez. So they're at sea for quite a long time. Um, eventually, uh, Dunstable decided he'd set off early. He set off in the January and others followed in dribs and drabs afterwards. But as, you know, the route was through, um, Persia or Iran, as we know it now, through Kermanshaw, Hamadan, Risht to Enzeli on the Caspian Sea with a view to taking a boat from Enzeli to, um, Baku. So that was the route. Uh, he estimated it was going to take 12 days. So they set off in Model T. Fords with a Lewis gun, a um, few supplies and a lot of gold and off they went uh, had a couple of yeah the 12 days just went straight out the window um, the roads were terrible the mountain passes they had to go over one pass which was over seven and a half thousand feet um, they were snowed in twice once for a week um, it was very spent a lot of time digging the cars out of out of snow drifts so eventually they reached Kazvan just before Inzelli, and then found that sort of seat of anti-British resistance under Mirza Kuchik Khan, who's lead of the local Jangali tribe. So at that point, they pretty much about turned and went back down the road to Hamadan for a while to, to gather strength. So yeah, um, Dunstable's estimated 12 days was just, I mean, that would have taken him into late January, February. Um, in reality, I don't think they got to, they didn't get to Inzelli till about June. By the time, yeah, they'd um, all gathered together and um, got sufficient reinforcements. So, what what kind of advantages and disadvantages did he did he have in his in his force? Because obviously, resupply is a long way, but he must have had something going for him when they arrived. Um, I think, as the British had been in Persia for such a long time, it wasn't quite as isolated. There were post offices, there were banks, there were people who'd been you know, Americans and British who'd been working out there. So it wasn't entirely isolated. One of the problems he did have was the commanding officers in um, Baghdad. Uh, one of them thought that he should be under, Dunstable shouldn't have an independent command, so he should be under his command. So he was kind of a bit obstructive. Um, so the advantage, and Dunstable himself, he, he got on well with local people. Um, he spoke seven different languages. Um, and he also had a very effective system of spies as well, his own intelligence agents who were able to intercept trouble as it came along. So, yeah, he did have that advantage. But his disadvantage was it was a very, very small force. At one point, um, 
the his Russian ally, Lazar Besherikov, had shown up and scared off the Shingali. But when Besherikov moved north with his his Russian um his Russian forces, um uh, Kuchik Khan and the Jingali saw their um, opportunity and ambushed a small detachment of Dunstable's force. And that's where uh, um, Robin, Robert Durford was killed, who um, was an old Etonian. Alex put me onto that. Um, I presumably you saw that as part when you were doing your Etonian research. I did. His brother's uh, yeah. in my book um, and I yeah. couldn't fit Persia into the book. Um, did you go and look? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of, well, I kind of read the the letters sort of backwards. So first letters I saw were, you know, the family writing to each other saying, "Oh, this is terrible. Robert's dead." And then the chap from the chaplain to the family. And then I started reading the letters that he'd written home for that. And suddenly, all of a sudden, it was quite dusty in the archive. Yeah. He's the baby of the family, isn't he? He's the baby of the family. Yeah, yeah, sort of. Yeah, and his brother had been killed at Huga in fifteen. So that's right. Yeah, so he was another one. And then another family member was captured. Um, was prisoner of war. Yeah, he's one of the um, tunnelers of Holzmind, and he's that's right. Book about it. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was very interesting. Okay, so how does the situation? How does the situation look at Enzeli um, when when they begin? Not great. He gets to Enzeli and finds it a Bolshevik stronghold. So um, and the uh, committee in Enzeli had received orders from the committee in Baku to arrest Dunstaville. So at that point, Dunstaville turns around and uh, gets out of Dodge, <laughs> runs. Um, he eventually, after um, after a few weeks, he makes his way back. Um, and somehow he managed to, one of his intelligence agents obtains a letter proving that Kuchik Khan had been working in, in cahoots with the committee. And Kuchik Khan, who'd killed this, this soldier officer of Dunstable. So Dunstable had the committee in Enzeli all arrested and thrown, thrown into the prison. So, uh, prior to that, Dunstable had actually, um, negotiated a swap for car, um, the committee, the Bolshevik committee wanted cars. Dunstable was desperate for petrol, so he negotiated to swap some of his cars for petrol. Um, by that time, he'd thrown them all in the committee, got his petrol and kept his cars. So his, um, yeah, very stalky. Um, when he got to Enzeli, his next task was to get across to, get across to Baku, and he managed to obtain the use of a ship, the President Kruger, and from there, yeah, um, took off to Baku. We've talked about soldiers now. Let's talk about the Kruger. Let's talk more about ships. <laughs> no, so you floaty nerds. No. Yeah. There is a tiny floaty nerdery, Chris, and this is not it. <laughs> oh, dear. That's so pretty. The President Kruger, it was part of the British Caspian Flotilla, who was sent there in 1918, um, mainly to secure, this is completely out of Dunstaff, Dunster Force, really, but this was um, to secure Krasnovodosk, which is on the other side of the Caspian Sea from Baku, um, and it was to secure that them, that town against the, the Bolsheviks, and that was part of what was called the Malison Mission, who the, the famous uh, spy T. Jones was attached to. Um, this is all to counteract the rising threat of Bolshevism. Um, Dunsterville was very very much um, counteracting the, the threat of the Germans and the Turks, more so than Bolsheviks, whereas this was a new threat, which was uh, appearing now that the British British government had to take cognizance of. 
Um, yeah, um, don't know why it was called the President Kruger, but it was. Um, when Dunstaville got onto the ship, he, um, uh, he, there was a bit of a hoo-ha about what flag it was going to be, um, sailing under, because there's no way Dunstaville was going to, um, sail under a, uh, Bolshevik revolutionary flag. Um, he couldn't put up the, the Russian flag because that would upset any other Bolsheviks around. So he reached this compromise, which was to fly the Russian flag upside down, which unbeknown to loads of just about everyone else is that's actually pretty close to the Serbian flag. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Teague Jones actually made this pithy comment. Now, bear with me here, but, uh, you had a British general on the Caspian Sea sailing from a Persian port on board a ship named after a South African Boer president of German descent under a Serbian flag to assist a body of Armenians in a revolutionary Russian town against the Turks. So, yeah, has everyone got that? <laughs> so, <laughs> Sounds yeah, perfectly <laughs> reasonable. Yeah, so the situation was, yeah, it was quite complex. So, what happens when they get to Baku on the 17th of August? They get to Baku and the first thing they need to do is to start training the local Armenian troops uh, to defend the town. That was, um, Dunster Force itself was small. Uh, no, I've never found an exact number, but I think estimates have put it somewhere just under a thousand. So, Dunster, yeah, Dunster Force was very small and they needed the, the help from the locals. And so they, they start training them, equipping them, feeding them as well, because uh, Persia and Baku, that area, had been racked by famine over the prior two years. Um, but it turned out that these Armenian troops were just hopeless. They just, they used to just turn about and run. Um, if they didn't agree with the decision, they didn't feel, um, personally bound by it. So, um, even in the middle of fighting, they would actually sit down and have a committee decision about This is a something. very, like, post-revolutionary Russian thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, the Turks were gradually, um, encroaching on the town. Uh, eventually when they did attack, um, Dunster Force did hold them off, kept holding them off. But at the final, you know, on the very end of, um, what they could do, uh, Dunsterville had to go to the, what was called the dictators, the five dictators who were in charge of the town and say, look, I advise you to make peace with the Turks and we're out here, mate. You know, we can't, we've done all we can, you know, so that was that really. Yeah, because like in every good sort of commando movie that I've, or war movie I've ever seen, you know, the small plucky force turn up, they train the locals and they repel the vicious enemy. Yeah. But the, like you said, the Ottomans come on in quite, quite way. How, how, how badly does the fighting go? I mean, obviously very badly, but. I mean, out of the 235, um, officers whose names I can sort of, you know, guarantee who were with Dancing Force. Um, I can't remember. It was, I calculate it was something like 22, yeah, I've got it written down. 22% died out of those. I mean, not all through the fighting. Um, there's all, a whole range of, um, exotic illnesses that they came down with on the way there. But, um, yeah, the fighting didn't go well. Dancing Force did lose a lot of its troops and the, uh, the locals just turned and fled. One of the um, issues for the local towns when uh, the fight dictator didn't see this coming. So they were absolutely shocked, gobsmacked when Dunstaville said, sorry, um, I'm out of here, um, boarded the Kruger um, and the dictators had them fired on. 
for the Kruger, but they managed to escape. In terms of fighting, what does it look like compared to the Western Front? Um, sort of, um, in town, um, I don't know what you call it. It's more Stalingrad, I would think. Yeah. It's more Stalingrad. It was certainly building to building fighting. Yeah. At one point, Dunstaville's in the Hotel d'Europe, um, and it's getting shelled very, very heavily. And he is, this is really strange. It's almost as though they know we're here. So when that building's obliterated, he moves to the next building, another one. That's shelled. This is, this is odd. And it was only after the, the conflict, um, uh, I think it was Rawlinson who'd been speaking to this Turkish colonel and said, like, you know, a Turkish colonel had said to him, do you remember that Turkmenistan guy who used to sell you your, um, feed for your mules? That was me. So, um, Dunstaville. Um, spies didn't always get it right. That was pretty, pretty epic. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing, when they were trying to, when all this fighting was going on, uh, Alfred Rawlinson, Lieutenant Alfred Rawlinson, who's the younger brother of the more famous Rawlinson, um, he manages to obtain a ship called the Armenian. And what he does there is try and clear as much uh, ammunition, arms, anything of bombs bombs, anything like that, away onto the ship to take it away from the Turks to stop it falling to the Turkish hands. So, and he, he's actually awarded the DSO for his actions at the end, uh, because he had a Russian captain of his ship who um, was very, a Russian captain and crew who were not helpful, to put it mildly. So what he did was build up a barricade of all these uh, crates of ammunition, set the fuses and everything so it was all live. And he pointed out to the Russian crew, one bullet would take out not only the explosives, it would take out the ship and it would take out everyone to kingdom come. And so he managed to make them comply and sailed away with all this ammunition, basically a gigantic floating bomb and for which he, he received DSO. I just love this. What's, there, there's so many anecdotes in that. Oh, what's your, what's your favorite? What's the one where you're like, come on. Oh, another really good one. Yeah, it just occurred to me, um, at some point, um, Dunstable had backups from planes sent from Baghdad. And of course, Persians, they'd never seen the like, these, these planes flying overhead. Um, he didn't have anyone shot or strafed by the, you know, the planes. He just used them for maximum fear effect. But at one point, one of the pilots, um, landed and he immediately found himself surrounded by these Persian women who were ripping lumps off their clothes their own clothes and what it transpired was that it's because he's wearing shorts the persian women thought that there was a cloth shortage so they were going to repair his shorts for him and make trousers <laughs> yeah so that, that was awesome. quite a good one as well i've forgotten his name i'll have to, I'll have to look that up uh, <laughs> there's so many characters is there one that you are completely in love with uh probably rawlinson I mean, he was, uh, he'd been injured on the Western Front in 1915, injured by a shell, um, went back home to, to recover. And then sort of he, he'd been actually promoted to be colonel when he was on the Western Front by John French. But when he was recovering, he got told he couldn't be a colonel because whatever process they'd used to promote him wasn't the right one. So he wasn't entitled to be a colonel. So he went in a right strop, left the army and went to the Admiralty and said, look, you know, here I am, I'm volunteering. He was um, put on um, air raid safety and ze- Zeppelin prevention in London. He writes the worry. book, doesn't he, about the defence of London? That's the one. Yeah. 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 
yeah, that's it. And then he gets bored. And so he actually writes, volunteers again, a writing that he had this ardent desire to get right back in it, in the action. He's bored. He wanted to, yeah, take it to the enemy. So he was, he's quite a character. It must be hard as well coming from that family where dad was really high up. Um, your brother, your brother bossing yeah. an army. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so following the call and evacuation of Dunstavorce's adventures, uh, come to an end, haven't they? Have they? They do. Uh, yeah. How would you yeah. evaluate their operation? Um, Percy Sykes, South Persia Rifles, actually said, oh, he did a valuable thing. He, he stopped the um, Turks and the Germans getting the oil in the last weeks of the war. Um, but overall, I think it was an opportunity missed. Um, yeah, if there'd been more troops, they could have seized um, Baku, held on to it a bit longer, even you know, permanently. Um, but as it was, um, it became absorbed in bombs. Bolshevik Russia by about 1920. So I think it was probably a bit of an opportunity missed, really. And because, you know, it's one of these things where they held, they were, they did have to retreat. So it was never going to be a sort of real success story. Uh, as it was, you know, the Turks had sued for peace, you know, just over a month later anyway. I think because the, the, the Germans were still fighting in that area for quite some time. There was like German detachments all over the place. Oh, yeah. I think they ended up in that there was also a lot of prisoners of war moving about in the place. There's a lot of prisoners of war out there as well. German and Austria-Hungarian. Trying to find their way home by starting another war. <laughs> <laughs> yes. well, I think one of the things he, he did, one of the things um, Dunstaville did accomplish was on his way through um, Persia, one thing he did notice were a lot of bodies at the side of the road. It was, um, the place was absolutely wrapped by famine. So what he did was to start famine alleviation works. Quite a lot of his volunteers were South African, uh, Australian, Canadian, so they all had farming backgrounds. So he'd had a butcher, butchery set up, bakery, digging wells. So in that respect, I think he won the Battle of Hearts and Minds. He's because quite a likable character, isn't he? He was a very likable character. He liked people. He didn't have this attitude that the locals were lesser people than the British or anything like that. Even Kuchik Khan, who previously ambushed him, became his main supplier of rice. So, yeah, he was, he just had a way with people, I think. He was also life and soul of the party. He liked, he liked to party. Uh, there are various accounts of him, uh, at 3 a.m singing very bawdy songs and the hosts and hostess of the party thinking how are we going to get rid of him <laughs> so, uh, yeah. which leads me to give everyone the cocktail recipe because you handed these um, out yeah. at like what 11 in the morning at the great war group conference yeah yeah like, uh, what was it in my defense Lockie started earlier than i did he did do a he did do <laughs> I an martini at nine at eight eight, eight, yeah yeah well this was um on the boat journey, on the way round, um, sink from through the Med, through Suez, and up through um, up Persian Gulf, and um, the soldiers, the officers had a chance to do sightseeing. They did quite a lot of drinking, and Singapore stingers were the, the drink of choice, which one of the Great War Group members described as being a cross between, I think it was Murray Mints, Fairy Liquid, and Screen Wash. With, I, uh, I did three yeah, of them yeah, with yeah. Andy, so um, yeah, it went down so, very well. It went down very well, so it's 
Yeah, it was kind of like listening. I got my eyes open for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a load left over, so I poured them away down the drain. I'm fairly sure the hotel in Chester doesn't have block drains anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Louise, assuming your other half is listening to this interview, where is all this research leading? This research is now leading me um, conveniently to the Imperial War Museum in August. I was making the most of another event there. Um, also to Kipling Archives, which are down near Brighton. So it's been, things have been quite convenient. Um, coming from Scotland, uh, none of these things are a day trip. That's yeah. the big problem I'm finding. It's, you know, talking at least three days off work and not in considerable amount of money. And then hopefully next year, Baku. Who I've, I think I've managed to persuade one of the Great War Group members to come along with me because he is uh, convinced I'm going to get myself killed. No, he'll, he'll agree <laughs> to anything after. And, and frankly, having seen him in the desert, he's more likely to come to Greece than you are. Um, I thought that. <laughs> yeah, it, you're going to end up babysitting him. Um, but hopefully, at the other end of this, a book. Well, I would love to, but yeah. Yeah, I'm telling you, so. you're going to do a book. Like I'm, I'm going to stand over you, and point at you. <laughs> Uh, Vander Wilcox said something similar. Yeah, we're just going to stand over you and point at you till you do it. And Vanda has a very good stern face because I've seen her use it on her little girl. Yeah, I will. I will yeah, have to meet her. <laughs> Louise, thanks so much for coming in to talk about your competition winning work. Um, and I'm not remotely sorry that you're now stuck down this rabbit hole. And it's taken oh yeah, there's no chance of me ever coming out of this rabbit hole. I don't think it's. I mean, what what I have found and I have to say is that. Um, people have been very, very generous. Um, people who've heard about research, I've had completely, or when some complete stranger contacts you on Twitter, you can be a bit, oh my goodness, who is this? But for the most part, I've had people contact me saying, oh, um, so and so, my, my aunt has the diary and, you know, this kind of thing. So yeah, for the most part, I've had, yeah, yeah. So very generous, um, offers of help from people. Yeah, I think we should say if there is anyone listening who has any familial contacts uh, with Dunster Force, because it is hard to pin down a list of exactly who was with it. Uh, if you know that your people were there, um, contact Louise. Oh, yeah, that would be lovely. She will never leave you alone again. Free Singapore stingers at the bar. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Louise, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.